Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Money Mentors Podcast. My name's Glenn Fairburn and I'm here with my co-host Nathan Lear. We're brought to you by Hewlson Private Wealth, one of Australia's leading independent financial planning and wealth management firms. Nathan and I are both directors and private client advisors at Hewlson Private Wealth um, and the objective of this podcast is to improve financial awareness and financial literacy. Um, this week on the podcast, we chat to one of our senior associates, Travis Schindler, who bought his first property last year. We just really wanted to go through uh, a few of the tips and traps, um, look at some of the grants and also some of the concessions available and, and also just suggestions that, that we make with regards to debt repayment, um, the search process for your first property and also you know, other professionals that you should consult. Um, so we hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Money Mentors podcast. Uh, today we have a, a guest joining us, uh, Travis Schindler, who is a, a senior associate private client advisor with, with Hewlson Private Wealth. Um, the reason we wanted to bring Travis on today is to talk about uh, his personal experience with um, recently purchasing his first home um, and we wanted to have a bit of a, a more broader discussion around that concept around you know, purchasing a first home, um, you know, some of the concessions available for you, whether it's first home owner grant or uh, stamp duty concessions and yeah, just going to a, a few other bits and pieces. So um, to maybe to start it off, Trav, I'll, um, I, I guess just ask you a couple of things that come to mind in terms of your experience in terms of um, when you bought your first home last year. Yeah, thanks for having me, uh, Glenn and Nathan. Great to be here. Uh, so yeah, as you said, I bought my first uh, property uh, in 2017, um, and it's it's been a, a journey full of learnings. Um, but uh, you know, I, I've learned a lot, and uh, I'm pretty happy to where I am today. Um, so happy to answer any questions you guys might have and share with the listeners. Be- being the first property purchase, did you were you sort of did you have pressure on yourself to buy a first property as opposed to renting? Obviously, with the property market so strong recently, uh, I suppose. People in general who haven't had property before feel like they've, you know, that fear of missing out, miss the boat, that sort of thing. Was there any sort of apprehension buying the property or were you pretty keen to just get into the market and sort of kick things off, so to speak? Yeah, I guess for me personally, um, I was told from a young age, oh, you'll, you'll never be able to afford a property. Prices are too high. And I think that motivated me to, to, to prove a few people wrong and, and do that. So I was fortunate enough that I could live at home for a few years and benefit from being able to save um, a larger portion of my income as compared to if I if I rented a property, um, so you know there was a two a good two three year period there where I was living at home with my parents and my, and my brother when my friends were moving out and renting and, and, and maybe getting a bit more enjoyment out of life um, and and going through that journey of renting with friends, um, but financially it allowed me to save more of my income and and work towards my goal of buying a property. So Trav, take us through the journey. So when did you start planning this um how did you go about saving for it how how, did you have a goal in terms of how much you wanted to spend therefore how much you wanted to save just just talk us through that kind of process yeah so you know i bought a property in 2017 but the journey began probably three four years before that um just always having you know a, a goal in mind of wanting to buy a property and then working out backwards what i had to do to get there um so i knew i wouldn't have enough money to you know buy a family home in the area i wanted um, but I wanted to get my foot in the market. So that would be, you know, an apartment, two bed, two bath, whatever it would be. 
um, I, I was I spent a lot of time dreaming on realestate.com and I knew a ballpark figure of what I needed to save, you know, 20%, for example. Um, and even well before I had that 20% figure, I was learning what I needed to do, um, how to get financing when the time was right, um, what area I wanted, was it a new property, an existing property? Um, so it starts long before you actually buy the property. And, and how did you find, like how hard was it to get the right balance between, you know, as a, as a young person wanting to, whether it's travel or, or, or do things socially, whatever it may be. And obviously, you got, you, as you said, you had mates that were sort of, you know, renting and, and, and enjoying life as well. How hard did you find getting the right balance between obviously having that financial objective of, of buying your first property, but then also getting the right balance between, you know, traveling, enjoying life as well? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a challenge for anyone younger. Um, you know, there's a lot of pressures to want to travel or go out and buy a new pair of training shoes or, or, or whatever that may be. But I think it all comes down to repetition of good money habits. Um, get your income. What do you do with it? You know how much you're saving each week. And over a, a period of time, um, it can really make a difference. Um, it's all, I think it's all about delayed gratification, um, pushing forward, you know, delaying what you can buy now for, for what you might be able to buy in a few years time um, it's hard at times you make mistakes or, or you, you know you have to go through that and miss a few weeks of spending and um, you know but I think um, eventually um, you start to see it all coming together in your savings um, and, and yeah Trav did you use a, a mortgage broker and how, how was your experience if you did use one how was how was that experience and did you think it was uh, beneficial to the whole process yeah, well, Nath, we actually met with a, a son of a client recently who was in his late 20s um, and something that w I told him was that I, I engaged a mortgage broker well before I was in a position to buy the property. Um, I think you learn a lot through having the conversations with the mortgage broker, how, how to get finance, what the banks are looking at. Because if you don't know what the banks are looking at, um, then you don't know what you need to do to save and get those the, the cash balance up. Um, so things I learned was, you know, um, genuine savings, that's what the banks look for, your spending. Um, banks have really tightened now in the past three to six months on what they're looking at. So if you're, if you're spending um, a, lo a lot more than what you say you might be, they might be looking a bit deeper now. So I think learning all that along the way can help you get to where you want to be. Um, and, and just through, I suppose, once you'd, and I'll ask you a moment how you went about finding a property, but once you'd identified the property that you wanted to buy, um, and, and obviously, I had to take out a loan to, to, to buy the property. Did you find that the mortgage bro bro um, broker added value in that situation as far as, you know, just have, having the experience dealing with banks, um, going through the application process? Um, did you find that, that valuable? Absolutely. I mean, I, I personally brought, bought a property off the plan. Um, whether you buy an established property or whatever your property you buy, I think you need to have a good, solid team of experienced professionals around you, whether that be a solicitor, or a conveyancer, and a mortgage broker. Um, you know, I, I, I wasn't experienced, and they, they provided me with a lot of insight into things I wouldn't have thought about if they weren't there. Um, so the financing aspect side of things, the property transfer at settlement, um, it was invaluable, um, especially with the banks, you know, tightening down on who they're lending to and what they're, how much they're going to lend. Um, I think there's a lot of pitfalls that first homeowners or inexperienced property investors can, can get trapped into if they don't have that good, good advice. And just with the, with the property that, that you bought, um, you know, with, with the potential of, it, of, of being a home as well, what, what were you looking for? Was it more so 
did you t- have two points of view where one was as somewhat of investment but also somewhere that you wanted to live because sometimes there can be a disconnect can't there where you know you perhaps you're looking for an investment property where it's more about capital growth and 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 return versus a home that it's somewhere in an area that you want to live and so forth what what was your sort of plan around that was it more so looking for a home that you wanted to live in or did you have two eyes where it was it was it was a bit of both like as an investment and as a home because I, I just find that some people get you know perhaps when they're looking at buying their first home they're, they're so hell-bent on perhaps the investment return aspect of it without considering sort of the the home aspect of it like what, what was your sort of intentions with that yeah i think there's definitely no right or wrong answer here i think it just comes down to you know there's so many ways to do it you could rent in rent in the area you want to live in and buy a property further out where you can afford to get your foot in the market personally i decided i wanted to um, purchase something in a suburb that i might want to live in in the future um, so obviously I, I might not have been able to afford the property i want to live in with with a family one day um, but i think you have to get a balance between investment return and lifestyle um, to you know my learnings were that more people in the market are owner occupiers in the future so you have to keep that in mind when you when you buy a property could i sell this could i essentially sell the dream to an owner occupier because there's more owner occupiers in the market in certain areas than there are investors um, so you have to find that balance between yes it could be i could rent it out and get x f- per week um, but in the future when I, when i do go to sell it in however many years um, can i sell that dream to to someone who has to buy this property off me yeah. So, so you, Trev, you're happy for this to be somewhat of a s- stepping stone property for you where, I mean, depending on your financial position down the track, you, you, you may, I'm, I'm guessing you may keep it, you may sell it to upgrade to a family home. But that, when you purchased it, the view was that, um, you know, it, it's in terms of where you're going to live anyway, looking forward 10, 20 years, it may just be a stepping stone property. Would that be right? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, things might change, but I think it's really important to go into this with your eyes open and have have that longer term plan in place. I mean, ideally, I'd love to keep it and have an investment property forever. But in reality, I might need a, to access some of the capital mm. to, to buy a, b- a larger family home. So things change, but I think it's important to, to buy it with that dream in mind um, and have, have the plan change as your circumstances change. Um, I was just going to ask, there's been a lot of uh, talk about property prices uh, in, you know, we're in Melbourne. So Melbourne over the past few years, we've, Glenn and I have dedicated quite a few podcasts on that whole concept around you know property prices and affordability and even home ownership we spoke about a couple of weeks ago just as someone who's recently bought a property just want to kind of hear your you know feel in terms of when you bought it you know a lot of talk about elevated property prices and just you know how your your emotions around buying a property on that side of it yeah i mean it's it's so easy to get caught in the traps of uh of am i buying at the right price what's the market doing but I think that's where it comes into, is this a lifestyle asset or is it an investment property? And also, am I going to be holding this asset for you know, five to seven years, which you should be as, as it is a property? Um, well, does it matter if I'm buying it for 25 grand more or less here or there? I mean, when you've got that longer term view, I think those, those shorter term stress points don't really affect it. Um, I guess for me personally, um, having the comfort of, comfort of the location of the property um, gives me a bit of confidence there um, and longer term and I see what's going on around the area people want to live in the area I live in um, you know I'm not too worried I, I see the demographic around the place um, and the and the amenities and, and the council's actually really working to improve the area so I think if you buy in the right location 
and you've got the right future in mind with, you know, can I sell this to an owner occupier or an investor? Do I have the right balance in place? Um, a, a lot of those short-term concerns about is this the right price aren't really um, a major problem. And I think that's a good piece of advice, in particular when you're buying a property as a first-home buyer and it is and it is a stepping stone. And I think you're right. I mean, you do need to have that exit plan in place because, what, as you were saying, what you need to consider is what's going to be the attraction of this property for the next buyer um, because, you know, I suppose a, a few things, a few of the times Nathan have spoken, Nathan and I have both spoken about, you know, the, the oversupply perhaps of, you know, the, the high-rise apartments and, and some of the things that I've said to clients and people before is that if, if you're buying an apartment in one of those high-rise buildings today, yes, it might be attractive today, but what's stopping, you know, in five years' time when you go to sell, there's another new apartment building directly across the road. So why would someone want to buy your apartment? And I think that's the risk that perhaps a lot of people have in that first homeowner's um, position where, you know, perhaps they see that as an affordable entry point, but you're right. I mean, if it is a stepping stone and perhaps, you know, the, the, the time frame of investment is five to seven years, there is a risk, isn't there, that when you go to sell that there could be something as high quality right next door that another buyer is going to want to buy more than yours. And that's where you can potentially be at risk, isn't it? So I think, you know, as you were saying what you've done, just looking at the location and looking at what the attractive thing is for the next buyer. Um, so location is important, isn't it, even with that stepping stone? Yeah, definitely. And to your point, Glenn, I think there's, I mean, there's definitely a risk around buying into a, a large high-rise building. Um, as you said, someone can just come and build something right next door in the newest and best location. Um, but I think, you know, if, if you're buying something that's, that's underpinned by the location and, and the, the number of apartments in that building isn't, you know, excessive, um, you know, and the floor plan is attractive, um, well, then you, you, and you've got that long-term view, well, then you're a little bit, you know, on the more conservative side. Um, but I think just, just getting there b- before you can actually buy the property, a lot of things have to happen, such as saving for your first deposit. Um, and I think that's really an important thing that someone buying their first property needs to consider because it, it's, not as, it's not as simple as, oh, I'm ready to buy a property. It takes a, long, a lot of work to actually get there. Um, and, and I thought maybe that's, that, that, that's something we could, we could chat about here. Yeah, so, so definitely. Well, for, before we go to that, I was just going to mention, um, in, in terms of researching the market, I mean, I know you, you've spoken about, uh, Trav, you, you, know, you spent a lot of time understanding you know, the market, probably on realestate.com for many years, and it, that would have given you a lot of confidence that you know, when you buy this property, it's a long-term investment. So I think that's you know, great advice to anybody, just to uh, you know, don't just on a whim go and buy a property, you know, spend the time researching it, understand the market, the dynamics of the market, which by the sound of it you've got a really good grasp of so that's great um so in terms of saving for it i mean i think trav you mentioned earlier we had a couple of clients recently where um we had this discussion around you know putting in place a budget um because a lot of a a lot of people uh might not have a budget so obviously that's probably the first step if you um if if you know roughly the the value of the property that you want to purchase you you, let's say you need a a 20 percent deposit you've you've worked with your mortgage broker or you've done your research and you need a 20% deposit, you know roughly what you need to save. So if it's a $500,000 property, uh, you know, you'll need to build up roughly $100,000, maybe maybe more depending on the situation. Um, so I think, yeah, that's probably a great piece of advice to start, isn't it, Trav, in terms of get a, get a budget and know what you need to save? Yeah, exactly right. I mean, uh, you guys have spoken about um, budgeting on previous Money Mentors podcasts, but it's so imperative, I think, to, to work out how much you need to save and then work backwards from there. 
Um, so essentially, if you need to save $100,000 to get into your first property that you want to buy, um, work backwards and say, I need to save X amount per year, which means I need to save this amount each week from my pay, if you get paid weekly. And then you can work out every week you get paid, you know how much you have to save. You don't have to, you don't have to then spend everything you want and then say, oh, well, this week I can save this much or this week I can only save this much. Um, I think that's really important. Um, you need to have that discipline, discipline plan in place over a number of years to get to, to, get to that um, deposit level. And just on, the, on that deposit level with regards to the 20%, which is like that magic figure, there's reasons behind that, isn't there? Because you know, I've had people say, oh, you know, the banks only want 10%. And that, that's right. But if you have a deposit less than 20%, that's where you've got the, um, the mortgage insurance, don't you? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people that, that not necessarily everyone can get to that 20% level to buy the property. So s- something called lender's mortgage insurance comes into play where the banks essentially um, insure you against, against default. And you have to pay for their insurance, basically. Exactly right. <laughs> and you pay for that. So it increases the amount you pay. Um, and it's obviously, it's um, ideal to, to have the 20%, but some people can't get there. So it, not every, it's very common to see people actually pay that lender's mortgage insurance. It's not preferable. Um, but it's not like it's the most uncommon thing. A lot, a lot of people are paying it, um, but yeah. Which leads perfectly into um, a, a, a topic I want to talk about is ways you can potentially get around that uh, 20, if, if you haven't saved that 20% deposit but want to uh, avoid paying lender's mortgage insurance, there is, uh, with, with assistance from perhaps family, there is ways that you can do that. Do you want to maybe talk through that, Trav? Yeah, so something called a, a guarantor loan. Um, it's not necessarily appropriate for everyone's circumstances. A lot of things need to be thought about it before you um, go down this path. But essentially, a guarantor loan is where you can access the equity in your parents' family home, for example, um, and help secure that deposit. So a guarantor loan helps with the equity side of things when, when getting a home loan or an investment loan. It doesn't actually help with servicing the loan. You still need to have the income required to service that loan um, which you may or may not have um, but a guarantor loan can help with the deposit or the, the equity side of things yeah definitely definitely okay we might uh, change tune a little bit now so in terms of uh, buying a first uh, a first property there is uh, various concessions available out there to um, first home buyers so um, there's a couple of different things we'll, we'll talk about today but the first one um, is probably the most well-known, the, the first homeowner's grant. Um, so basically, just to introduce that, um, the first homeowner's grant was yeah, introduced by the federal government back in 2000, um, really for the reason to improve affordability um, for first home buyers. Now, it is a, while it's a federal um, policy, it is, um, it is, the grants are basically provided by the, by the states or territories. So it is different in every state or territory, and it has changed significantly um, in the 18 or so years that it's that it's been around. Um, so, I might ask you, Trav, if you could just kind of explain. I mean, we're in Victoria here, so maybe we'll think about it in a Victorian context as well. But um, yeah, if you just want to talk through, Trav, you know, in terms of how much it is and how it works at the moment. Yeah, sure. So there's there's two um, aspects of this. There's an off the plan. Um, uh, there's an off-the-plan um, cash cash that you can get from the government. Um, you can get a grant of $10,000 if you meet certain criteria. So if you purchase your first home on or after 1 July 2017, you live in that property, 
um, you, you'll, you'll, you're eligible for a, a, a $10,000 grant from the government, um, but if you meet other criteria as well. Um, it's changed after 1 July. So before 1 July 17, it was for investors and owner-occupiers, but the government's brought into changes to try and essentially um, put a cap on that investor investor growth in the market um, to say, well, now you can only, you can only um, receive that concession if you're a owner-occupier. So basically, you have to live in it for 12 months, don't you? You, you essentially get, yeah. have to live in the property for 12 months. Um, and then there's a duty concession. So if you purchase a property um, for $600,000 or less, um, you're exempt as a first homeowner, you're exempt from paying the, the stamp duty. Um, and then between 600000 and 750000 there's a, there's a sliding scale of, of concessions available. So, so before we get into the stamp duty, Trav, just on the first homeowner grant, um, you, you need to live in the property within, within the first 12 months um, and for at least six months is, is my understanding. So uh, there is, I guess, things, certain criteria that you do need to meet and, and obviously you'd want to, if you are considering applying for the first homeowner grant, you'd want to make sure uh, you obviously adhere to these, um, these things. Obviously, it needs to, you need to be an Australian um, citizen or permanent resident, which can vary via the state. Uh, and obviously, probably the big one is the the value of the property. It needs to be, as you mentioned earlier, Travis. It needs to be um, under a certain amount to to qualify for this. Um, you, you did touch on the uh, stamp duty concessions. So um, once again, there is there is concessions available on just to introduce stamp duty. Um, stamp duty basically is quite a is quite a hit. You know, it's around that five to six percent mark. Um, if you if you buy a property and you don't you, know, you don't see that again, it's basically a, a one-off cost of buying a property. So, just to just you kind of quickly went over that before, just to go through those savings again. Yeah. So just to, there's there's an important distinction there. Um, as a first homeowner, uh, you could be eligible for what's called a grant of up to ten thousand um, dollars if you purchase a, a a new property, what's called off the plan. But separate to that, um, your you, you can also, if you if you purchase an off-the-plan property, um, you get concessions where you, you you only have to pay duty or stamp duty on, on the improved value of the land. So you can get discounts on that upfront stamp duty um, and the changes I was talking about before um, were relating to whether you're an investor or, or, or owner-occupier. Do you think, just, just on those, um, I suppose, incentives, whether it's the first homeowner's grant or the, or the stamp duty concessions, do, do you think that there's, I suppose, a little bit of a bias for properties outside or in the outer suburbs? Because, I mean, arguably, inner suburban properties are probably going to be above that level, aren't they? So it is still quite difficult for first homeowners, isn't it? Or for first property buyers to buy a property close to the city, isn't it? Because obviously, one, the property values are higher. So you're not going to get the first homeowners grant or those stamp duty concessions. So do you have any experience with, with friends, colleagues, a similar sort of age bracket or entering the property market, whether they've actually found these concessions beneficial or useful? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I've, um, I, I don't think that the driving force to buy a property is just solely because of the concessions or the, 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 the grants that you could receive, but I think it definitely plays into it. Um, and I think that the, we're seeing in the market or market commentators, things that I've been reading are saying that in that first home buyer space where concessions are available, the prices are starting to maybe be bid up a little bit because of first home buyers accessing these concessions and that's the problem isn't it? i know we've spoken about that a few times you know with regards to the property market the government's introduced these concessions and schemes but 
arguably all, all they've done is just push up property prices, haven't they? So you sort of wonder, is it really doing what it's supposed to do, make properties more affordable for first home buyers or is it just pushing up the prices anyway so that the concessions and, and um, rebates that you get effectively they're just offsetting an increase in, in the price of the properties, aren't they? Like it's, it's almost counterintuitive. Yeah, I think that's a natural and unintended consequence of this, but is there a way around it? I'm not sure. It's probably open to debate. Um, I think it does bid up prices, but to a cap. Like, f- for example, um, a, a close friend of mine recently purchased a property um, and, and they said to the agent, I'm not willing to pay more than... It, the contract price has to be below 600000 And that was to access the first home buyer's duty exemption. So I think that, yes, property prices will get bid up, but there'll be a cap on it because if it goes over certain levels and there's no concessions available, so the first homeowners aren't going to be as active in that space. So basically, if you purchased your, your first home newly built, um, if it's in like re- regional... Melbourne, you get a $10,000 first homeowner grant. If it's regional, you get $20,000. And then under $600,000, you're not paying any stamp duty. So that, like, these are significant savings. You can, I mean, stamp duty would, would ordinarily be on, on, um, on 600,000, you know, maybe 25, 30 odd thousand. Plus, if you're getting another 10 or 20,000 as a first homeowner grant, I mean, these are, these are serious savings. So you can see why, yeah, it would really incentivize people to, um, make use of these and, as you said with your friend, sp- spend no more than 600000 Yeah, definitely. But I think it's important to say, you know, I, I definitely encourage anyone to go to the, the State Revenue Officer's website and, and read more about these concessions. It, it is quite complex and get some advice around it. Um, but I don't think it's the number one driving force behind buying a property. As we've spoken about, it's a long-term investment. Location comes into play. Uh, what are your future plans with it? Um, and this is just one piece of the puzzle. Um, yeah, and, ju- and just on that, Trav, just with the reference to the website, the, on the uh, SRO website for Victoria, there is actually a list of um, areas or, or councils that are classified as regional because as you were saying, Nathan, I mean, it is it's a significant amount of money. I mean, $20,000 plus if the property's $600,000, is another $15,000 starting. I mean, that's $35,000, which for a lot of people, that could be half of a home deposit. So there's definitely the incentive. And as, as I was alluding to earlier, I suppose the biggest issue is... Um, you know, well, one property prices, and, it, and it's all good and well to encourage people to move to regional areas. But as we've spoken about before, you know, if, if you're living in the city, whether that's beneficial or not, maybe the government could spend on infrastructure. Just to um, change tact a little bit, Trav, I, I just wanted to um, have a brief discussion about ways that you can save for the deposit. Obviously, you, you went down the more traditional path, you know, putting in place a budget, working, having an objective as to what you needed to save, and then working backwards. So if you need to save, you know, $100,000 over over two years, you can work out what you need to be putting away every week to do that. Um, outside of the first homeowners grant and the concessions for stamp duty, there's also the first home um, super saver scheme. Um, well, one, is that something that you looked at? And, and secondly, perhaps we can just have a little bit of a discussion about how that works, what the benefit is. So is that something that you used? It wasn't simply because it wasn't uh, around when I was through the pro- going through the process of saving. Um, I um, it, the first home super saver scheme was introduced in the 2017 budget, um, so it, it's available now um, for for those that, that would like to consider it. Um, did, did you want to talk about it? Yeah, m- maybe just outline how how it works, just so the listeners can have some understanding as to what you know what the system is. So essentially, it, it allows first home buyers to be able to make contributions to superannuation, voluntary contributions, and then withdraw them. 
um, to, for the purpose of buying their first property. As we know, superannuation is, is a concessionally taxed environment. So the benefit of, of going down this path is that you, you could receive tax savings, which essentially accelerate your, your, your ability to save. So, so that, that tax saving is, is basically through the ability of being able to contribute to superannuation from your pre-tax salary, isn't it? So ordinarily, if your you know, gross salary is $100,000, if you were saving in the traditional sense, you'd have to earn the $100,000, pay tax, and then have the, the net income available for you to save. Whereas through this scheme, you could make pre-tax contributions. So instead of your salary being taxed at marginal tax rates up to you know 47 and a bit percent, um, on the way into superannuation, they're only taxed at 15%. So that there is a significant tax saving there, isn't there? There is. So as you said, Glenn, you get, you get a tax saving on, on, on the way into... On, on the way into your super fund. Um, and then as we know, superannuation um, investment earnings are only taxed at 15%, whereas if you invested that money outside of superannuation, your, your, your earnings or, or gains would be, would be taxed at marginal rates. Um, and I guess that leads to an important discussion point or, or, um, or consideration. Um, if, if you do go down this path and you do allocate some money into the super saver scheme, what do you do with it once, it, once it's actually there? Um, should it be invested, you know, in, in a high growth option or should it be held in cash? I mean, you know, m- most younger people might be have their superannuation, um, you know, in, in a high growth option because just simply they got that time um, to weather any storms. But I think that, you know, if I was, when I was saving, I kept my money in cash because I, I didn't know when a property was going to come about and I didn't want to put that money at risk. So if I'm going to put that money into superannuation, I'd be having a good think about, what, what happens to that money once it's there. Um, so it's really important to align the strategy within your super fund to what your objectives are, isn't it? So if you might have access to those funds in the short term, as you were saying, it's probably best to look at cash. What's the maximum that you could contribute to superannuation with your pre-tax salary into this um, super, you know, the savings scheme? Well, yeah, so concessional contributions, um, uh, the, the, the cap is $25,000 per annum. Um, now, it's important to consider that that cap includes contributions that your employer makes, is obligated to make on your behalf. So let's just say your, your employer contributes $10,000 to superannuation on your behalf in a, in a financial year. Well, then you, your remaining concessional cap is only $15,000. Um, so you could volunteer, voluntarily make contributions up to that limit, um, pay tax on, on, on those contributions being made. Um, but then there's what's also called non-concessional contributions, which is essentially tax-paid money that you elect to put into into superannuation, and that cap is $100,000 a year. Um, so you, 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 under the rules, you can consider both. Um, whether you should or not um, is really depending on your circumstances. And then how do you get it out? So w- you can actually make withdrawals from your super fund. So as we know, superannuation is preserved until you meet a condition of release. Generally, that's you know based on your age, call it 60, for example, or retirement. Um, so being younger and a first home buyer, um, you have the ability to access the money you put into superannuation for the purpose of buying a home. You can withdraw it. Um, you do get a tax offset when you take it out of your super fund. So that represents the tax you've already paid when you put it in um, and, and the earnings, the tax on earnings you've paid once it was in that fund. Um, the, 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 the catch is, or not, not really a catch, you have to use it within 12 months to purchase your first property. Um, if you don't, you either have to contribute it back to your super fund or you get penalised with tax. 
Is, is there any other downsides aside from that? I mean, you've spoken about sort of, you know, the, the investment risk of, you know, just having it go into superannuation and if you're just going into the your normal investment option, which could be a balanced or growth, which if you need the funds in a couple of years' time, there is, of course, the risk that it could reduce in value over that period of time. Are, are there any other sort of things that people should be looking for with that particular scheme? Um, I mean, just making sure that you, you meet the criteria when you take it out. Um and that and that you you are using it for the purpose that it's there for, which is to buy a property. Um, on on the benefit side, I think that it, it can help with it with structured savings because you can't access it um, unless you go to the lengths of saying I want to withdraw it to buy a property. Um, it, it can help with having that structured plan in place to to lock money away for the savings for, for the purpose of buying a property. Um, and and also another benefit is if you're if you're a member of a couple, well then you could both consider this um, and essentially double double the benefits between the two of you. Yep, <coughs> Trav, just to to clarify how much you can do, um, can you? I think you've you've got the information. What's the maximum you can contribute towards this scheme? Uh, the maximum you can contribute each financial year uh, will be limited to fifteen thousand dollars. And is there a total? Is your understanding that is there a total all up? Is it thirty thousand? Have I have I have I read that right? Or I thought well, we can clarify that later. I thought there might have been a a, a maximum um, of thirty thousand dollar thirty thousand dollars on the whole amount. But that, that's fine. Look, it is. I'd say like with the grants, we said th- there is a bit of detail around this. So um, you know, we and, and obviously with the superannuation side, it does add some layers of complexity. And I think that's a really good point you made before about the. Um, about the, the the investment risk because a lot of people i would have thought if they if they take part in this in this policy they would just put it in their existing super fund which could be 80 percent in in shares and things like that so i would really strongly encourage anybody to to seek advice and maybe look to put it in a cash option because they don't want to they don't want to jeopardize that part of their uh of their superannuation portfolio um so we've spoken about um i guess the the various concessions available so i might I might change tact a little bit now, Travis. I just wanted to ask you around um, around perhaps you know, stress testing your portfolio, and um, I know you've put a bit of thought into that in terms of uh, how interest rates might impact your repayments. Do you want to talk us through how you've thought about that? Yeah, I mean, it's important to all right. So you've already been able to buy your property. You're fortunate enough to be in that position, but what happens once you've already got it? You've got to fund a loan. You've got costs. You've got if you're living in a in a strata property, you've got body corporate potentially. Um, you've got a loan. So what happens if interest rates go up? I think that all of this needs to be um, considered um, if if you're an, if you've got owner an owner of a property. Um, what what would happen to your financial situation if interest rates went up a little bit or or a, a lot? Um, and I think that it's important for anyone to really stre- what's called stress test their financial situation. Um, you don't have to be, you know, a, a, a spreadsheet whiz. Just, I think, just do some basic calculations. How could you cope with changes to your current circumstances? So, so that's essentially just, I mean, at the moment, we're, we're, you know, anyone who's got a mortgage, fortunate enough to have interest rates at around the sort of 4% level. Um, so is what you're saying, when you're looking at your budget, looking at what you can afford to repay, don't just factor in repayments as they are right now, but perhaps look at, you know, maybe a 10 15% buffer so that when rates do increase um you know you're, you're well set for that even setting your repayments initially above what the minimum is so that if rates do increase um the bottom line impact on your budget's not that great would that be sort of a fair 
amount of advice to give people. Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. And I think I think the banks do a bit of this for you, um, or, that, or they do. When, when they go to assess your eligibility for a loan, um, that they assess you how you could cope with a given level of interest rates, which are significantly higher than they currently are. So I think that rate is around 7%. Um, and, and that being said, the banks recently have been moving away from using an index um, generalized rate to assess your borrowing capacity to actually looking at your actual uh, expenses, um, which, which means that if you're going for a loan, um, you know, the banks are going to want some more information on what you're actually spending. Um, but, but, you know, it, it, ju- it just means you have to plan a bit better. Sure. So, uh, Travis, just to kind of look to wrap this up. So now you've got your, you know, you've got your 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 property that you've purchased. Have you put a lot of thought into uh, got debt repayment goals? Is that something you you focus on on a lot, or how do you treat that? And and maybe on that, just the concept around offset offset accounts. Quickly talk about that for a moment. Yeah, definitely. So, um, just to an offset account. So many they're very common these days. Um, offset accounts are essentially a a cash bank account and and you can use the balance of that account to offset the amount of interest that you pay on your on your home loan or or loan Um, so essentially an example if you have a five hundred thousand dollar loan well then you're going to be charged interest over five hundred thousand dollars but if you have an offset account with cash of one hundred thousand dollars well then your loan is offset by that amount so they're going the bank will calculate your interest payments using 500,000 less 100,000, so 400,000. Yeah, which can provide great flexibility um, if you need to redraw that money or if you ever move out, if you're living in that property, then move out and want to turn it into an investment property so you can claim the maximum tax deductions. Exactly right. That, 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 that's one strategy you could do and I think that's where um, seeking advice comes into, into play because um, not everyone thinks about the longer term uh, their longer-term situation and what they can do now to essentially prepare for what could happen in the future. I think also the other benefit of the offset account is that if if you've got a mortgage and you're, you're you know pretty keen to repay that over a period of time, but you also want to save for a holiday, then if you're saving for a holiday in a bank account that's earning interest, even if you're getting a reasonable rate of interest, you're going to lose you know a percentage of that return um, via tax. Whereas if you have that money in an offset account, as you were saying, have any amount of money that you've got in the offset account is actually going to save you interest on your mortgage and that interest saving you're not getting taxed on so there's a, there's a fairly substantial benefit in just accumulating funds in that offset account if you need access to it for, for another purpose yeah I completely agree glenn but one point i would add to an offset account is um you need discipline because essentially it's a bank account so if you have an, an amount of savings in your offset account, you could access that like an everyday bank account, go to an ATM and, and withdraw it. So you need to have that discipline in place to, to know that it's there for a purpose, which is to offset your loan or your, your mortgage, and it's there for a rainy day. It, it, it shouldn't be viewed as something that you can just go and, and access at any time. Yeah, look, I agree 100%. Look, my suggestion to clients is to always have you know, that set repayment. So if you want to repay your mortgage over 10 years, set your repayment level at that amount, and then really just use the offset account for other purposes if it's savings for another objective or whatever it may be because I agree with you 100%. The, you know, and I've said this to clients many times that the temptation is if you just make the minimum repayment or if you've got an interest-only loan on your mortgage and then you accumulate money in the offset account, it's very tempting, isn't it, that you know, if, if, if you know, a hot deal comes up for, you for, for a trip or something like that, oh, I've got the money in my offset account, I'll just draw it down. And then all you find is that you know, the, the term of your loan just continues to 
you know, you get pushed out to many, many years and you actually don't make any any inroads into the repayment of your mortgage. So I 100% agree that it's important to still set your repayment at a, at a, at a reasonable rate to repay it over whatever time frame you want and then just have additional amounts in that offset account. You, you definitely need to have the, 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 the systems in place and the discipline and fight the temptations and um, just, just on the whole kind of loan, like banks love 30-year loans. Like the longer you have a loan and pay interest, they, they make more money, they make a margin on that. So, um, I mean, one piece of advice we always offer clients is pay down that non-deductible debt in particular as, as soon as you can, as quickly as possible. And, um, you know, have a, you know, if it's a 30-year loan, have a you know, 15-year goal or 10-year goal, you know, depending on your situation, you really want to knock that off as quickly as possible. Um, so before we wrap up, Travis, did you have any kind of final advice or anything that we hadn't spoken about that you wanted to, to mention today? Otherwise, I'm happy to wrap it up there. Uh, I think the key message I'd send to anyone is um, uh, put in place some good cash flow um, tools and, and, and strategies to really um, put in place some genuine savings. Um, it takes time and repetition. Um, surround yourself with a good team, whether that be a, a mortgage broker, someone that you trust that, that will look out for your best interests. Um, and, and, and definitely get professional um, legal advice on any contract or property contract before you sign it, before you commit to a purchase, because you want to do the research and, and know what you're buying, um, and, and, and pretty much just in, enjoy the process. It is a bit of a roller coaster, um, but at the end of the day, you, you'll be thankful for where you get to. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, Travis, for uh, joining us as a, as a guest on the episode today. Just to quickly recap, we had a quite an in-depth discussion around the whole concept around buying your first property, uh, how you might go about saving for it, uh, how you might deal with other professionals, um, a little bit around the, the various concessions, first home owner grant stamp duty concessions and the uh, first home super saver scheme. Um, so once again, thanks, uh, thanks for joining us on the show and we look forward to having you next week. Thanks everybody for listening again to another episode of the Money Mentors podcast. Um, if you enjoy the, the content, please do subscribe to the podcast um, via um, any good po podcasting app. Um, once again, please check out our major sponsors website, Hewison Private Wealth. Um, so just, just search for Hewison Private Wealth online. Also check out Hewison Private Wealth's um, social media channels, Facebook LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, thanks again. We'll see you next week.